Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Good morning, everyone. I'm here at the offices of Bell Howley to discuss some tax planning and restructuring of assets and companies. I'm with Simon and Amanda, so would you like to just introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Amanda Perotten. I'm the sister of Bell Howley. Uh, I'm Simon Howley. I'm the tax specialist at Bell Howley. So one of the things that I've been struggling for a while is with structure. That's the structure of my property assets and how to structure them, whether it's in companies and even if it's in a company, how is that structure, whether it's a group structure, etc. Because a lot of the people that I've spoken to that went bust in 2008, um, the majority of them had a structure issue, which when one thing went bad, it went bad for everything else. So with group structure... Can you just explain how that works and what are some of the benefits of it? Um, a group structure will limit companies. They're fairly easy to put in place at the start. Shares are very flexible. Shares have rights to capital, to income and voting rights. that come with those rights. You can adapt, modify share rights. You can have shares like votes with no capital rights, no income rights. Um, they're easy to transfer. They can be sold, uh, transferred between spouses, transferred into trust. So they're quite useful. Uh, obviously, a limited company is a legal person. Uh, we can trade. It's got its own bank account. It's on tax bills. Limited liability partnerships, again, is a limited entity. But partnerships do not pay tax. Partnerships, you look straight through to the part. So in effect, it's like two sole traders working together. But again, LLPs are probably a bit more flexible than limited companies. A group structure benefits from many things from a tax point of view. You can move assets within the group without paying stamp duty. Uh, there's group relief for that. You don't pay any capital gains tax within the group because, in effect, it's treated for tax as one entity. Group VAT registration could be beneficial. In effect, you fill one VAT return in for the group. Uh, that depends really on, on what you're doing in the underlying companies. Some could be trading, some could be investments, some could be a management company. So you have to analyse the VAT situation so you, you're optimising your input tax coming back. So that's a, a basic synopsis. Of so to give a quick example, one of the things I look at is to have a holding company at the top with no assets in okay. and underneath to have an investment company which holds investment assets okay. and then also below the holding company to have a development company and this could be an SPV set up specifically for one development. Okay. Benefits of that in my mind would be that I do the development, I then either sell the development or I can transfer it over to the investment company. Yeah. Also, if I'm uh, selling the investment, I'm only going to pay corporation tax on the profit. Yes. That can then go up to the holding company and back down to the investment company to buy more yeah. investments. Yes. The other issue I've, I often come across when doing developments and trying to work out whether I'm going to sell or hold it comes back to that. Yeah. So especially if you're converting a commercial building into residential, it would be buy the commercial building, elect that company and possibly building for that. Yeah. 
when when we're doing the building works, they'll the VAT will be rated at five percent. Yeah. But five percent of a big building a cost is yeah. is still a lot. So it's we can claim back that input VAT. Yeah. And then if we're selling those residential units, there's zero VAT on residential units. And if we want to hold, we can then transfer that or sell that to our investment company. And yeah. again, because it's inter company, yeah. there's no stamp duty capital yeah. gains on that and there'd be zero rate VAT on rented yeah. houses. So we can earn back some of that VAT through that, in my mind. Is that correct? Yeah, you, you, you need to get a in place first of all. Obviously, the investment company is an investment. It's passive income goes yeah. into there. Uh, development is a trading activity, so buildings in there is stock in trade, it's a sort of balance sheet, it's just like buying widgets, yeah. no different at all. Management company is a, a business activity, so you're charging the cost of your rent and maintenance or so So you need to get the structure in place first of all, get the back analysis done so it's correct for what you want to do. And then really it's important to get the advice, so therefore if it is a commercial building, Again, you've got to check if it's not been oxidized tax in the first place. If it has, you've got to charge VAT in like 20 years' time. Um, but you convert it. So, and often, if you get it correct at the starting point, you can replicate the transaction going forward. And you talked about that group VAT structure. Yes. So, yep. if you've got management companies, trading companies within that group, yeah, it, it, it's it, one VAT return. In effect, it, 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 for VAT purposes, it's, it's treated as one entity that's, that's trading. So, you have one VAT return for the quarter. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Again, you need to analyse partial exemption rules yeah. and input tax rules and exemptions. So it's more complex than yes. But from a, a, an admin point of view, it's much, much simpler. You do one return for the whole group. And the other reason I like that group structure with the holding company is if I'm going to do a joint venture with someone yeah. and that joint venture could either be trading properties or a development that we're going to hold together if that person wanted to take out dividends it would mean both we'd both have to take out dividends whereas in this way where there's a holding company that owns my share of that it means the dividend uh, the dividends can be passed up to the holding company and I don't have to take them at the same time especially if I've got a big tax bill that year personally yeah yeah it could affect that again shares are flexible so if you have just all the same shares or say passive shares, ordinary shares, if you bought a dividend, you all get the dividend. What you could have is ordinary A shares, ordinary B shares, ordinary C shares. They got different rights. Yeah. So in effect, um, if I held the B shares, I could have a dividend. If Amanda held the C shares, she could have a dividend and vice versa. It's quite flexible, but again, it's getting the structure done at the start, not after you've started doing transactional work. Now, a big thing that people go into property with is about legacy and they want to create assets and uh, build wealth to leave to their children or family or loved ones. So one of the things I was considering was setting up a trust. Now, Amanda, what would you think are, are the main points in this and what, what things are there to look out for if we've already set up this group structure? Well, I think primarily you need to consider whether or not, if it's a uh, trading company, whether you're going to get business property relief. So death legacy is all about paying inheritance tax and or minimising the amount of inheritance tax you're going to pay. The only way you can actually do that is to take an asset out of your estate. So if you have a holding company that holds 
the, there could be a trust that holds those shares, 100% of the shares yeah. uh, in the holding company. And as Simon said, you could have different classes of shares that are issued to different beneficiaries, different potential beneficiaries, with the trustees primarily being in place in order to maximise the wealth that's generated through the trust that they're managing. Because often people will say, oh, we'll just give your family or your daughters or sons uh, shares in that company. But my concern is always, well, if that person then marries someone and they get divorced, (laughs) then that person might have a right to some of those shares. So it's about keeping it in, in, essentially keeping it in in your bloodline if that's what you wanted to do. And the trust works around that issue, does it? It potentially works around that issue. So you'll have a discretionary trust with a number of classes or potential classes of beneficiary within that trust. They could have the right to income, they could have the right to capital. So, for example, with your children, as they're growing, you may decide to have a trust that's in place for school fees, for university fees, and the rights of that beneficiary will be dictated by the terms of the trust. So the trust may say that you only have a right to income. So Mm -hmm. if you only have a right to income from the asset, that asset will never actually pass to that particular beneficiary, and therefore the errant new (laughs) (laughs) son-in-law that you don't like. Yeah, okay, brilliant. And so what about the different... You kind of touched on it there with discretionary trust. What, What are the different types of trusts and how might they come into play in that sort of scenario. So the discretionary trust is one of the most flexible trusts to use because it gives the trustees the discretionary as to how to advance capital or income. So that does exactly what it says on the tin. So you can draft a document to ensure that the trustees have the power and it must be noted that it is the trustees' discretion as to how they operate that power. You can't set up a trust thinking that you as the settlor can control the I th- way... <laughs> I, th- I think Amanda's I mean, saying this because before I said I wanted to control my assets from the go- beyond the grave. And... No, you can yeah, that, it's not possible. You can only request the trustees to consider yeah. something. Yes, you, you can put in a, a letter of wishes yeah. as to yeah. how you would like okay. your trustees to conduct themselves. Which but... they will normally follow anyway because it's, it's in their interest for the beneficiaries to act in your interest, but you cannot demand yeah. they act in that way. You can't control the trust. <laughs> that is the bottom line. <laughs> I'm obviously a control freak. Yeah. But back, to the, back to the BPR point for inheritance tax uh, reasons. So that's the business... Uh, uh, property, property. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, obviously, it needs to be a trading entity company uh, or group. Or the group. Or yeah. the group needs to be. And the exemption from that is 100%. Uh, if you qualify, so you need to own those shares more than two years. But if it is possible to have investment activity within a trading group, and therefore the whole value of those shares is exempt. So if, like me, majority of what I hold is investments, yep. but they start off as being developments, yes. what are some examples of trading? Because obviously we need 51% of that to be... Yeah, trading in the group. It needs to be more, it needs to be, you have to look at it as in time. Yeah. There's a famous case of a farmer versus farmer, and, and Mr. Farmer was actually a farmer, um, <laughs> where he had obviously, uh, he had cattle farms, yeah. but obviously he then developed um, various outbuildings into rental properties. And he was trying to get um, tax relief or inheritance tax for that. HMRC argued it wasn't, it was more an investment activity now than a trading activity. But if you look at the time he spent, 
and the resources he spent in the business as a whole, it was more into the farming side. Oh. So you look at it in the whole. So yeah. it's time, it's investment, it's value of assets, um, it's activity. So, so effort and things yeah, like so that that are going on yeah. that maybe haven't made the same amount of money as some of those investments. Correct, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's like if, if you have a large cash balance on the balance sheet. Now, if it just holds cash, is it trading? No. Is it investment? No. But how was that cash generated? Yeah. A trading activity. So it's looking more into that. And, and, and who um, would decide that? It's going to be, you need to ideally review it every year. So you might start off where you don't qualify. Yeah. Um, but you might think, well, I'm going to do more activities where more trading stuff. I can qualify in the future. Yeah. Um, so especially you would, when you die, obviously, uh, you claim the relief on, on your uh, uh, returns to the estate yeah. office, and then HMRC can query that. One of the other things about sort of inheritance tax and capital gains is if it's the shares in that holding company that go into trust, what are the benefits of having different types of shares? So if, if it's we're leaving uh, a different type of share to, to go into that trust, how can we mitigate against inheritance tax that way? Well, on your death anyway, it's the assets that you hold on your death. Mm-hmm. Um, so it should be a list of your assets, less your liabilities, comes to your net estate, less your allowances you're entitled to, times 40%. If, if you give shares outright, uh, you know you can't claim them back, you can't use that asset, um, it's not in your estate. Mm-hmm. It's just someone else's estate. Yeah. So it's not taxed on you. So you could essentially give shares in that holding company, a different class of shares yeah. maybe, and they could be the ones that go to trust. Yes. So actually there's going to be no... No well, you, game. You, you can value your company as it is now. Yeah. I'll keep it simple. That's yeah. worth £100. Yeah. You could create a new share class. These could be growth shares or flowering shares, they're called. They could accrue all future value at a certain point. So whilst you were day-to-day trading exactly the same, the value in the shares is moving away from your estate. Right. It's going into the other shares that's owned by the trust or maybe your children or other family members. So again, but it's making it so it's, it's not too rigid because, of course, in a business cycle, you may need the income from those shares in five years' time. But yes. if you've given it away, you can't get it back, really. Now, what happens if you've already got a business which has investment properties and possibly even development properties in, and you've decided that you want to restructure? One of the main issues that always comes up is lending, because when you're restructuring the ownership of those assets and which companies own... Uh, often, if you've got lending against those assets, they're going to want to understand um, what's happening on on, on their security. Yeah. So, what are some of the things that you can probably do to to help with that? I know we've previously mentioned um, beneficial interest and things like that. So, so the, the, you that? could you could hold an asset if you hold an asset, you hold it on trust for you could hold it on trust for the company, for your trading company, for the investment company, and you then, as you own the asset, it would be you personally that's applying for the lending. So that may facilitate lending for future developments because otherwise the banks are going to look at the company that's taking the lending. So is the bank then still looking at the asset as security or is it looking at you personally as security? No, the, the bank is looking at the asset yeah. as security. You know, similarly, if you are buying 
you know, a, a residential property, yeah. the, the bank is looking at that specific asset and looking to see how much equity is remaining in the, in the asset so that basically they can get their money back. That, that's all they're interested so in. So essentially you're not underwriting that loan. No. You're just trying to think of the... Of well, so the some, some banks may require yeah. that you give personal guarantees. Yeah. You know, in the same way that they do with the limited company yes, as well. Yes, yeah. yes, they do. So the, there's no hard and fast rules, particularly with, with the banks at the moment, and it's a question of finding um, an expert, really, mm-hmm. that will look at the market as a whole, look at your structure as a whole, and then assist you in how you're going to raise the finance for the developments that you want to do. Yeah, because one of the big issues is if you're halfway through a five-year fixed mortgage on some of these assets, you need to look at, number one, timing is when when you can restructure, or sometimes it might be worth actually refinancing, paying any early redemption penalties, but just so you can restructure and get that in the way, because really the restructuring is is about risk, well certainly it is for me, and it's about uh, risk and tax efficiency. It's business. It's always risk, but again, it's planning. People don't plan ahead. Mm-hmm. People often phone us after the event. You can't unpick like I have. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it is quite common, and, yeah. and, and you can't unpick that. Yeah, but yeah. it's you know for the next time, and as I'm in, well, I hope my business is going to continue to grow. Yeah. So it's about understanding how then I structure everything that comes yeah. in. So it's when I buy a new development, I know I'm. Putting yeah. that in an SPV that's going to be owned by... It's having contact with your advisors, yeah. it's, you know, it's meeting up for lunch, having a chat, what are you doing? It's that hands-on thing that I was doing last night, with, I'm a with some clients last night. It's, oh, you're doing that, okay, you never told me that, and I can go away now and advise them next week. It's and, that, and I think, you know, Simon was saying earlier about sort of reviewing things annually... You know, it's, it's important to be in touch with your advisors. It's important to have a rough idea of a plan. Nothing's fixed. The idea is, is that you can't make something perfect now that may still be perfect in five years' time. Yeah. But if you're continuing the conversation and things change, things move, then the first port of call is to give us a call and say, well, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Prior to doing it and then saying, this is what I've done. That's a great point because certainly I'm sure there's people like me that always think, oh, I'm going to hold this off because it's not quite the right time to do it. It's not, I haven't really got all my ducks in a row yet, but actually it's, it's often better to just get started and you can, uh, especially things like property where legislation changes every yeah. two minutes. It's always changed. I mean, yeah. I had a client yesterday where we did some planning in the old taper relief days before entrepreneurs relief. Mm-hmm. We sold his shares to a trust in 2008. Now, now he's got a, a three and a half million pound loss he can't use up. It was fine at the time, yeah. but now I have to look forward now to try and find um, some way. Luckily, he has assets that will sell at a game going forward, but again, it, it just evolves. But I've that client of mine for the past 16, 17 years. So you kind of holistically work together, yeah. and that's how it works. And one of the things that I've always struggled with is trying to find almost your one-stop shop because you'll get VAT specialists, you'll get uh, tax planners, you'll get accountants and also lending and really it's, it's good to have a group where you can just get, get the answers and people are speaking to each other because quite often it's getting professionals to speak to each other is a bit of a, yeah, bit of a tricky yeah. thing. And they often have a conflict because they think you're stepping on their fee income yeah. um, but it's always been my ambition personally to have a collection of individuals in the same firm yeah. 
with complementary skill sets. So I'm a tax advisor, I'm a solicitor, uh, other partner is uh, an accountant, but we have other sisters, we have VAT experts, we have finance experts, um, it, it just gels together. Yeah. And from a client's point of view, they've just got one partner to deal with. Well, that's the easiest, isn't it? Yeah. One, you know, one point of contact is always easy. You're not being farmed yeah. off to a, a senior manager who will come and see you and then go back to the partner and then he's too busy to see you. So, yeah, you've got a partner-led activity, you have one partner to look after it and that is it. But I think as well, sort of once you generate a, a relationship with somebody, and you were saying about you know making sure you've got a starting point, you know, discussing whether or not inheritance tax can or will be paid, or how it can be mitigated, you know, you really need to have a decent will, yeah, in order to have a starting point. And whether you've got you know young children, whether you're sort of midway through your career, or whether you're um, looking at your retirement, you know, your will will also be a key instrument in how your estate will be distributed. And it also works as quite a good aid memoir to see how, what the assets are, where the assets are, where the debt lies, um, and how flexible you can be with what you've currently got. Mm. But that is something that you really shouldn't put off yeah. taking a step and saying because right, you can always adjust it Absolutely. as time goes on yeah yeah, you, yeah. Just, you need a starting point and with, with all things in life things change mm. Mm. you need to re- review it once a year twice a year if you're more sophisticated clients but yeah just keep an eye on it and if you don't have a will what happens on your death to your assets and your estate so the the rules of intestacy apply, so they will apply to distribute your assets in according with a prescribed format. So they are not to be relied upon as a means of either tax planning or no, yeah. <laughs> estate planning. Well, the last thing you want is <laughs> your kids to end up with a huge sort of tax bill at a time yeah. where they probably won't know yeah. what to do. With and, it. and you know things like guardians to a point. If yeah. you've got young family, you know it's important to just have a conversation. And and, and as I say. If, if things change in two years, five years, and you mm-hmm. need to make adjustments, that can be done quite simply. But if you've got nothing in place, then um, you're far more vulnerable. Earlier you mentioned sort of limited companies and LLPs. Mm-hmm. What are some of the benefits to an LLP versus a limited company and vice versa? And when might you think of, of, of using an LLP over a limited company? LLPs, as I said before, they don't pay tax. So you look through to the individual partners, so they're like sole traders. That work together. Um, so income tax, income tax corporation and dividends. So in effect, on income tax, you, you pay tax as income arises. Yeah. Okay. So if you've drawn out one pound that, that year, you've earned a hundred thousand pound. You're taxed at a hundred grand. Yeah. Uh, companies are uh, separate legal persons, as are LPs. I digress. But they pay their own tax, corporation tax. You as an individual shareholder or director, you pay when you extract money. So it could be dividends. Uh, it could be a salary, you might take loans out, it's more complex, so it, that's the, the basic rules for that really. Um, NLPs are very flexible, purely because there's a, a lot of the issues years ago where companies had property in the company and therefore you, you pay tax on that sale and therefore you pay tax again when you get the money out. So there was big issues years ago where you can use an LLP to transfer money out of a company. So in effect, you could have an LLP, you could have two partners, Mr and Mrs X, um, and then the company could join as a partner but put the property in as yeah. its contribution. Now, it has to be commercial. You've got to pay a commercial rate back to the company for that large contribution. But the beauty of that is you can then flip. You could have the income percentages more in favour of 
the company, but the capital payout on future growth to the individuals. Okay, right. Another example is you might have a cash-rich company. Okay, you want to invest in, in property. You want to get the money out. Well, for salary, very expensive. Dividends, very expensive. Set up an LLP. You could have two partners again, Mr. and Mrs. X. The company could put could put in a million pounds of cash as its capital contribution. You need to pay, of course, interest back to that, but you've got cash then. You've taken out the company for no income tax charges. Mm-hmm. You can use that then to develop a property. So it's quite flexible. Yeah. And another way, well, boring it to death, is you could often, if you wanted to incorporate a portfolio of properties also, yeah. you could um, put them into a, into a LLP or a partnership. Uh, there's no stamp duty on that if you structure it correctly because under Schedule 15 there's a, a calculation steps where you work it all out and it should come out to zero. Okay, that's not an avoidance thing, it's just a, a statute calculation. And then with capital gains? Capital gains, you can't sell to yourself. What about incorporation relief? Well, that's well, for all, capital gains, you put your capital value into the partnership account, but yeah. you own that value, you cannot sell something to yourself. Okay, yeah. Okay, then you're left, then you achieve nothing at that point anyway. You've just merely put it into a, a partnership wrapper. Now, if you want to incorporate, it's called incorporation relief, but it needs to be a business. Otherwise, you won't qualify for that. Yeah. Okay, so if you qualify for that, uh, a business, it needs to be more than one or two properties. It needs to be an actively managed portfolio. If you qualify for that, you can incorporate, and therefore, there's no capital gains tax on the incorporation. If you qualify for that, relief that also trumps the stamp duty charge. So, you, okay, so yeah. basically, you can't do it immediately because, therefore, uh, anti avoidance rules will probably deem it to be uh, the motive to avoid tax. Um, you can do it in two steps. Mm-hmm. You can do it, but it needs to be done over a year. Okay. So then it's less argument that HRC can say to you, well, you've done this transaction, not for commercial reasons, just to avoid tax. Yeah. But avoiding tax is, is a commercial reason also. <laughs> um, so you need to structure it correctly, but it can work quite nicely. Uh, and then, of course, then you, you've got the properties into your company. The base cost is uplifted on the day it goes into the company, so you, straight away it's that, that current day's value. Yes. Um, and if you sell, of course, the shares later on, the gain you deferred with the incorporation is true. Okay. So a bit complex, but it, it, well, no, yeah, they're it's very flexible. And just going back to structure, so one thing that a lot of accountants seem to advise property people on is to set up a uh, have their investment company owning a development company so that investment company owns investment assets and the development company owns a development and I think the reason they would do that is to say well once you do a development the profit will you'll only pay corporation tax on the profit and then that can go up into the investment company and that investment company can then buy more investment assets but is there any risk in having that structure whereby if something were to happen um, to one of the properties for, I don't know, for example, you might be doing maintenance on one of your investment properties and someone could fall off the roof or something like that and they put a claim in against that company, because that investment company owns a uh, development company and you're doing a big development at the time, could that development in any way be affected by, by that? But normally refunds, it's only if you have debts between the companies, but at the end of the day, I assume, must have insurance policies. Yeah. To cover yeah, the contractor yeah. who's um, sweeping leaves off the roof and falls and breaks his legs. Yeah, um, yeah it's, you can insure against these things. Yes. 
which is not too onerous with costs, I don't believe, anyway. Yeah. But normally, each company is a separate entity. And when you said, so you just mentioned, um, unless there's money owed. Yeah. Would that, be, would that count as, so for example, you might have an investment, the same way in which a director's loan works, so I might put money into a company to get it started to then purchase a property. If that investment company has then passed down that money, which was originally a director's loan to the development company to buy the land. If you take a basic example, I mean, if if it was sued, the top of it was sued, yes, uh, and damages were awarded, and it was a, a vast amount, there's no money in the company, but the money is owed money from the other company, mm-hmm. then it could affect it that way. Yeah. I'm not a criminal lawyer or yeah. in, in a sense, but there is just a... They could claw back, you owe us a million pounds, we've got to pay this out. So again, that's another good reason to have that holding company group structure because that would help mitigate against It, against it, it, it also makes things simpler to see as well. Yeah. If you have activities in different, different pots, you mm-hmm. call it, yeah. it's easier to look at and manage. Obviously, a group structure, you've got more accounts to do, more compliance companies house to do, mm-hmm. um, but that shouldn't be too onerous anyway. It's just, I think, easier for people to see. And what are some of the maybe... Um, you mentioned obviously more fees and things with company ha- company's house. Yeah. Little tricks and tips. I mean, like having your end of year at the same same date for all of them. Is that yeah, easy if enough you, to sort out? If you have a group structure, you can yeah. have a loss in one company. So therefore, you don't have to apportion the loss between different year ends. You can just uh, relieve it against different companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get instant tax relief on that. You have different year ends. Um, so in effect, you could pay tax at different times. You could have management charges between the entities. Uh, we can do to justify, of course, with paperwork and, uh, yeah. and invoices and stuff. But that will then give you maybe a cash flow advantage. The tax is the same, it just yeah. defers when you're paying it. So yeah. these are the things you can do. Okay, brilliant. Um, okay, well, that's been uh, really, really helpful. How can people get in contact with you if they've got uh, maybe a question about tax or uh, even about setting up trusts or that? I've got some websites, uh, which is obviously com. Uh, on there you'll see all the team. We do more than just tax and, and trusts and stuff and, and accounts. On there you'll see everything that we advise on. And you can email us or uh, info at bellhigh.com. Brilliant. I should just say that the reason I, I uh, came to Bellhigh was because I had lots of different questions and everyone I asked seemed to be a specialist in one part, whether it was VAT or whether it was... Uh, with a trust or even incorporation and I almost wanted a one-stop shop and I found that the best answers I got came from Bell Howley so that's the reason I, uh, I, I came, to, came to see them and it's been really really useful so thank you both uh, for giving me all that information. Pleasure. This sort of tax planning can sound boring and unnecessary to lots of people and there's certainly an argument for not getting dragged into the details. I just wanted to explain the issues that I have had that relate to this and what I'm doing to try and remedy them. Previously I've had a messy structure where assets have been ring-fenced but it hasn't been tax efficient. I had made the mistake of leaving some assets in my Topco and not taking them out before getting term financing on them. So I had no real holding company, just a Topco and a bottom co which ended up both essentially being investment companies after I'd done developments. The problem I have is that to put a new holding company on the top of my top co right now means getting permission from various different lenders on the different assets held within that company. I could just refinance and pay early redemption fees or 
wait a bit down the line until the terms expire when the majority of those early redemption fees have reduced or even look at the beneficial interest that Amanda mentioned. However, I would run into similar problems regarding lenders on that side. For new purchases, however, they will be done in separate SPVs and those SPVs will be owned by a holding company. And so when I'm ready, I can then move the other companies with the assets to go under the new holding company. The trust is also being dealt with so that a different class of shares of the holding company will go into trust and those shares will benefit from income from the assets but no capital appreciation which will allow generations after me to benefit from the income from the assets within that group but not being subject to large inheritance or capital gains tax bills. Obviously that's if there's any anything in there of value by the time I die but hopefully there would be. The holding company does make JVs and partnering up on projects much simpler. In the past when doing a JV and the partners wanted to take dividends I may have been forced to take money out of that SPV in a year where I might have had a big personal tax bill so that would have resulted in my net returns being much less. By the holding company being the owner of my portion of any JV projects it allows me to defer taking out funds when I want to from that holding company so it's much more tax efficient. I was also spending a lot on VAT whether it was on maintenance on investment properties or second fix items on developments or even just on your standard contractor costs on developments and conversions albeit often some of those are reduced to the 5% rate but often even on resi buildings where I'm doing sort of extensions, that can be 20%. So regardless of all the smaller amounts, they do add up to create significant sums. So the group VAT return being put into place is definitely going to make a difference for that with being able to claim a large proportion of these costs back across all companies, including any management companies and trading companies. So like everything, getting things set up right from the start would have made it much easier in the long term when scaling but also it's like the key thing here is what works for me may not work for the next person so it's so key to seek advice and make sure your tax planners understand not just where you are now but where you're hoping to be in 5, 10, 20 years and as Simon and Amanda said review this regularly as legislation often changes as we know certainly in the property game and if you are building an empire to hand down to your kids or loved ones no matter where you are now it's so important to get a will in place as that can be updated as things move on as well and any any changes come so i hope you found that useful please do subscribe uh, leave reviews if you like the uh, podcast and share it with your friends cheers bye